Welcome to Machine Learning. Well, another week has gone by, and uh, I've been doing a number of podcasts on investment strategies, and I've started a new data camp course uh, on risk management. The idea behind risk management is to uh, measure your your risk factors and adjust your strategies to reduce down those risks. They call it risk appetite. So, and if you, I guess there's this thing like risk and reward. So, for example, if we were talking about some of these high-tech companies where you're trying to figure out which ones are are uh, going to grow the fastest and and you can capitalize on quicker quickest then you you look at certain types of stocks and you invest in those and then try to capitalize on them. <clears throat> and you can and take the rewards but the problem is 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 a lot of times is um, <clears throat> you you if you're buying on recommendations of what people are saying you you make those purchases and then you uh, you know, you expect to see these huge rewards and payouts, but usually it's too late by the time you make your investment, and uh, and then the investors are profit taking, and the stock suddenly has a a drop in value, and then you're you're upset that you you didn't make money. Well, and and, and the thing about statistical projection is that it's based on historical data, so. Um, you know that's one one of the strategies that I have taken is looking at the historical data and then watching the the behavior of that group because I want to see if the behavior of the group is optimistic and if they're optimistic about that stock based on their behavior then there's there's more of a predictable pattern that they'll be optimistic in the future. You can predict on optimism, but you cannot predict on fear. Uh, fear has erratic behavior. It does strange things. There's a lot of strange acts when it comes to fear. And so when people are afraid, they do things that are very counterproductive or they uh, may engage in, in behavior that isn't healthy. So I don't like to try to anticipate or predict what person will do if they're afraid. And we did see some of this in subprime when uh, we we heard that that uh, different mortgage-backed securities had subprime loans as a part of their bundle or track, and that the ratings that were given on those bond qualities were actually inflated. And so that caused some uh, fear reactions. And once there was that fear reaction, the confidence game was over. And uh, there was behavior across globally that was unpredictable. And so that level of unpredictability um, 
then led to things like the housing bubble burst where the values in homes suddenly dropped about 30%. And the real values could have dropped clear down to 50%, but still a 30% drop was huge. And the stock market almost reverted back to the mean, which was around 7,000, 8,000, where your price uh, P ratios would have been around 17. And, you know, when you read Bogle's book on uh, the reversion to the mean, it really did make sense what the stock market had done. And so, you know, the the big concern is will we have a, a repeat like we saw in 2008, 2009. And if there is a repeat, uh, you know, the fact that there's so much government spending that has occurred now and we're in high inflation, uh, it then will probably not have the huge bailouts that we saw in 2008-2009. So one of the things that I've been thinking about is, you know, if you have inflation at 6%, 5 to 6%, then what uh, investments can keep up with inflation? You know, there are, there are such things as bonds that are inflation-based. In other words, they, they have adjusted for inflation. Some, some bonds are tax-free, so the income that you're getting is not taxable. And, and uh, then there's the trust that we, I talked about yesterday, where their yield is extremely high. And in other words, the dividend payments are really high. And so the investments into those trusts have uh, a large payout in terms of dividend. Well, how do you manage all that in your portfolio? Well, you have to have a weighted value. So you, you have some weighted value that you're going to measure your portfolio against. And then... Um, you multiply that by your percent change. So as your your as your portfolio is um, improving, disproving, or increasing or decreasing—that's a better way of saying it—according to your percentage change, then you can reevaluate on a uh, continuous basis the value of your portfolio. And it's fascinating that some of these mutual funds. They don't have 50 stocks that they invest in, but they have literally thousands of stocks that they invest in. And it seems like that they're looking for uh, rising stars in the performance of stock. Because why would you hold almost as many stocks in your portfolio as an index or more than an index? Um and it almost kind of then begs the question if they had become their own index rather than, you know, rely on the purchase of an S&P 500 or a Russell 2000 or uh, a Wall Street Dow Jones stock index. And 
you know, I really miss reading the Wall Street every day, but I, I enjoyed that when I did read it to try to see if I could understand the language of uh, finance and economics. And, you know, it, it was interesting. Uh, it was difficult at first to understand the terminology, but over time I started to, you know, build a vocabulary and then I could visualize in my mind what the uh, what was going on. And it was somewhat like systems analysis because I could analyze, I could predict, and then I would uh, I would see if my predictions uh, were correct according to the terminology, whether it was uh, on MBOs or uh, CDSs or MBSs, you know, whatever the you know terminology uh, was, I, I was thinking about how money worked. So I read about 700 articles plus all the Wall Street, and I was getting a pretty good understanding of how the financial world was working. I still have my notes on that, and so, you know, I can pull back on those notes and and uh, look up information if needed. Well, those are all fascinating case studies of of what happened in the past. And so well, the question is, will we repeat the past in the future? You know, and that creates a lot of anxiety when you're starting to think about the future because there's so much unknown and so much uncertainty. And that's what risk management is about, is uh, uncertainty, managing your uncertainty. So how do you manage uncertainty? Well, you have to have some level of confidence of what will happen in the future. And how is that confidence determined? Well, it's determined by statistics. And like we've talked about with ARMA, A-R-I-M-A, and moving averages and auto regressor, auto regressor, A-R-M-A, is that we, we look to see if we have a stationary model. We look to see if it's a random walk, a uh, white noise, or if we can find some correlation to something that we feel very confident about. So an example of uh, things that were, that were random but correlated, there was this idea, for example, of heating oil, and natural gas, that they were the two were correlated in the sense that uh, the the difference between them was not changing or was moving together, but that there they were both models that were random in terms of their price that that you couldn't you couldn't make predictions on trend by their price. And so you look at things like autocorrelation to to give you an idea of whether or not you have randomness and then you you can also then look at the p value to see if you can reject the null hypothesis. Null hypothesis being that the system is random. So you really want to study statistics. I I tell that to all my family members, take as much statistics as you possibly can. 
even if you can't figure out where to apply it, as long as you somewhat understand the principles of probability and how probability applies to certainty, that is so critical because, you know, if you can build a model where you understand the confidence ranges, like say, for example, on a, uh, a ARMA model, and you do your predict plot, and the confidence range is showing you a large variation, then that in somewhat is telling you the uncertainty of the future statistically. Now, what would happen with the subprime was interesting because their confidence ratios were very high, and those bands on the uncertainty of the future were probably very narrow, and that allowed them to make very large investments into those financial vehicles. And so banks, uh, the hedge funds were betting against the banks that the banks had overvalued. They could see that there was arbitrage in the interest rates and there was a gap from historical trends. And so you see some people like uh, Paulson who, who made billions off of it and then his hedge fund made hundreds of billions of dollars. And those, those activities all out on Wall Street all on the internet, you know, it's not something that I'm pulling out of thin air, but I've, I've, it, it really did happen that way. And so they, they, they were betting against the banks, and they used things like CDSs to leverage uh, the, the analysis on the spreads and the risk. And when, when the subprime melted down, the CDS spreads increased significantly because of risk and uh, then using derivatives, they made a lot of money. And that's one reason I hate derivatives. They are the financial cancer that infests the system. Um, and But, you know, derivatives are everywhere. We, you see that with variable rate loans, which you should never engage in. You should never purchase a variable rate loan because it has a bubble effect. Uh, what I mean by that is, you could pay a low interest rate now where risk uh, where your, your entry levels require low risk to, to make your purchase, but then over time those interest rates will increase and become a burden, and eventually you may not be able to finance those uh, increases in interest rates. Maybe your income doesn't increase enough to, to adjust for those risks. Well, so the the world of uncertainty is interesting, and uh, and so you know you want to build your models, remove the missing data, smooth out the the signal, you know, uh, get a normal distribution, then try to get data that uh, is predictable, and then once you have that, you have somewhat the behavior of a large financial institution. And, and that's one of the things that uh, I, I talked about yesterday was that we have this idea of institutional interest. Now, what is inter institutional interest? You know, that's a, a term that is kind of thrown out there. Well, what I'm calling institutional interest is large institution buying of a financial device. And so when we say large, we're talking 
hundreds of millions of shares that are purchased and, you know, providing an infusion of money to the companies which uh, these large funds have bought from. And so, you know, it looks like what will be the big AI companies where there's large money that is invested into their infrastructure. You know, we have a lot of new startups. We have the older companies like Google that have been now around for a long time that are doing things like uh, AlphaFold, AlphaZero, uh, DeepMind, etc. And, you know, they're building the AI systems of the future and you know, they're building, you know, making big breakthroughs and they're collaborating with research groups and businesses. But it's, I still think they're missing a large section of the consumer market, which is who can use it? I can't use a lot of Google's AI yet. It just does not have a uh, library or a interface that is accessible. So it's very off-limits. Even with uh, open AI codecs, you know, I, I used Boto and tried to do some GPT-3 interactions, and I got some strange results, and I, I replied back to them and said, hey, I'm not getting uh, good good respo responses back from GPT-3 using the API. And they said, well, it's the same thing. It's the same thing that runs the interface, and I'm like, I don't think so, because the interface actually makes sense what the AI is saying, but the API is largely just throwing up irrelevant information to me. Well, didn't get a response on that, ran out of tokens, and got really frustrated with Google. And see, that's the kind of behavior that is not going to allow widespread adoption of their technology. So they, I think they were hoping to find some mavens who would, you know, really push open AI and get a lot of developers, you know, experimenting with the open AI. And I just didn't see it. I don't see any uh, excitement about that, that particular trend. And so, you know, I think that uh, SKLearn has a, has a larger interest. You know, there's lots of people that have done SKLearn. They build models. They made predictions. You know, they apply it into business. They're getting some rewards off of the, the application of those models in business. And so, you know, your efficiency improvements are, are going to... Um, attract jobs and and the skill sets that people developers know will be the tools that they use on the job. So how can Google improve that image, improve that that lack of interest on their part or helping the developer community? And I think that they need to go where the action is. And they haven't done that. They haven't gone to the Stack Overflows. They haven't gone to the Plural Sites. There's nothing 
out there where developers are talking about OpenAI. And that's, uh, you know, hopefully they listen to this podcast and start to uh, rethink their strategies. Because what will happen is once there is a, a tool that uh, developers like and use and, you know, it's free and, and it, uh, it can solve problems, adoption rates will be really fast because you want the developer community because the developer community is the people that get the work done. And when you're getting the work done using your tool, then you have an advantage. Now, Microsoft uh, knows that, and they built their AutoML. And the problem I had with Microsoft's machine learning is that it's a lot of visual, um, there wasn't a lot of explanation, and is too much just throw it in, put in some parameters, and it works. And maybe that's great for someone who had a lot of knowledge of machine learning, but I was just learning machine learning, and I'd rather stick with the domains where there was lots of training, lots of knowledge. You know, but you look at Power BI and, and its adoption rates, and it was huge. The, the companies began to download uh, Power BI. They used it. There was lots of plugins that you could get behavior on. But see, OpenAI, again, misses the developer market because, you know, you have Python, and Python is a very powerful development language. And you have Seaboard and Matplotlib, and you have a lot of these tools that um, could have been integrated as a fundamental part of Power BI, but were not. So you could have the data stores and the and the um, uh, relationships between the data in Power BI. Great. That could be like your CSVs. And then you could have had Python that you could write like Jupyter Notes. And then you could have that code generating up your Python views. And so you could have this hybrid of Power BI drag-and-drop interface and also the programmable language of, of Python and Python libraries deployable to a Power BI server and distributed um, a contain, a contained within the uh, Python or with the Power BI file. And so all the JavaScript or the Python scripts, etc., could have been contained within that file. Now, how big would that file have been? You know, let's say that you were using TensorFlow and and you were using some AI in there also. It could have been significantly large. So Microsoft would then have to figure out a way in their programmable uh, environment to incorporate the Python libraries as part of the assembly distributions, the DLL distributions. 
And so we could say that it supports uh, Python 3.8, maybe, and, and uh, you know, make accessible through its architecture different Python libraries. But see, I don't think Microsoft is thinking that way. And just like Google, they're too greedy. And as a result, they're going to allow innovative companies to, to begin to capitalize on the fact that Python has become a more popular language than C Sharp or JavaScript. And the thing that I really dislike about Stack Overflow's argument that JavaScript is more popular than Python is that they say, well, look how much jQuery we have out there. Look how much uh, JavaScript we have out there. Look at what people are writing in. They're all writing in the front end of JavaScript. You know, it's really a slow process to write in JavaScript. And, uh, you know, the desire is for more component widget-like programmable languages like Dart and Flutter. And because they're faster development, a lot of startups are using Flutter over JavaScript. You're working with widgets and components and object-oriented inheritance like abstract class when you're dealing with uh, block logic code, which I've talked about. And, uh, you know, you have a separation of concerns on your UI so that it's, things are easier to test. You can put a testing team together, test the UI, test the business logic components. Uh, you have reusability on those business logic components. So you can share those across multiple applications. And um, so, in essence, Flutter is Visual Basic, which is a fantastic language for building fast applications, very robust, but one that a lot of the developers didn't like because they liked C Sharp and the compiler syntax that C Sharp offered, and it was some ways less verbose than VB, and, and uh, it appealed to Java programmers, and it appealed to C++ programmers. It's kind of like the marriage between those two languages, and so adoption was higher for C Sharp. Now you've got Dart that's coming along, and Flutter. And the question is, is why has the adoption rate not been faster? Well, it's because w there's this craftsmanship argument that's running in the development community is that you need craftsmen who have high levels of specialized knowledge in JavaScript language to do web development. And so that allows, creates a barrier, higher pay, less availability for qualified uh, uh developers, and so you have this huge shortage of skilled IT developers that can do the work. And so, you know, what the, what's happened is the complexity and the syntax and the language actually are creating barriers, and that has to be dropped, and it has to remove to more architectural approaches for development that allow for visual tools, 
and uh, you have visual tools and you have code generators and uh, perhaps soon you'll have AI doing a lot of the assisting on the development just like IntelliSense and that's I've brought that up before too. So I have a lot of of things that I want to see improved and I think that would be beneficial to the development community because AI will fill in the knowledge gap and the question where, where do developers fit? Well, developers have to guide the AI and that means that if the AI produces a solution that doesn't work it needs to have a conditional negative. If it does work, then it gets a conditional positive. And and the developers have to have an abstract understanding of what they want and uh, be able to work with the AI to build the infrastructure. But at some point, AI is going to build complex infrastructure that is going to be difficult for human comprehension to understand. So it's going to have to have ability to summarize what it did in a way that we can understand in a natural language processing summary, and then we will uh, uh, have to measure it's, you know, like if it used some sort of advanced formula to do curve fitting and we never heard of it. Now, we know least squares or we know, do know uh, numerical convergence or, you know, we know some of these different types of methods for curve fitting, like secant, tangential, uh, derivatives, you know, whatever. And say it comes up with curvilinear tensor method for doing the same thing, but it has a a certain percentage improvement. Well, do we really care to know the mathematics for which it may have used to build its formulas? And we may not. We may treat all those equations as black box, and it, you know, just like we have a list of possible curve-fitting algorithms that we can select from, or a list of functions that are used to deter measure for white noise or for autocorrelation or for uh, random walk. We just use it. We plug into the API. We trust that it works. We understand what the API's goals are, and we use it. And that's largely what a lot of development is about is not necessarily uh, rebuilding the will, but using the will. So we build the components, we put them together, and then we create these systems that work, and we don't touch them unless uh, we have to enhance them or uh, we, we, can, we can build obscuring classes that wrap around existing pieces of code and add additional functions uh, through different types of object-oriented subclassing and abstract classing, we're able to expand the model. And so that model expansion or increase in behavior without modifying the existing structure uh, makes object-oriented programming 
very powerful, but at the same time, it makes it very complex. You know, you have interfaces now, you have abstract classes, you have generics, and all of them are trying to allow for flexibility in your model. And so when you add AI to this, you know, how will the AI look at it? Will it look at everything being concrete classes, or will it try to take all the concrete classes and abstract that into a uh, abstract factory? Or will it use a builder model, or will it use a provider model? You know, each one of these object-oriented models does well for its particular domain of problems that it's trying to solve. I like the provider model when working with uh, Flutter because I don't have to deal with the inherent widget. But if you have to deal with the inherent widget and the methods on the inherited widget and notifications, uh, then you have a much more complex architecture to have to think about. But when you wrap the provider model and you abstract out all of that complexity associated with inherent widget, then you get a provider that wraps all of the child widgets as children widgets, and then you can uh, communicate between uh, any of the children widgets using the provider model. Well, that's great. Because originally I was using the inherent widget and Man, it did not work the way I wanted it to. And uh, once, you know, you, you get things out of sync with JavaScript, it's not like C-sharp where you can, you can get into the debugger and understand uh, where the events are going wrong, especially with async and threading and lots of complex uh, machinery underneath, software machinery underneath your layers that you're, you're programming in. And so moving to something that has high degree of predictability is, again, gets you kind of closer to the C-sharp. And so you can see why C-sharp was so powerful is, is that, you know, you have this predictable behavior and, and then you have large number of developers that are explaining the behavior and so they're mentoring developers through uh, learning, and it's a lot like the Unix community. You know, you didn't walk into a organization and just start coding. You had to go through the mentorship, understand the system, understand the language, and then do little projects and then gain confidence of the of the mentor. And then, you know, eventually you uh, were, were writing your own code, running your own make files, you know, running these huge C library compiles, reusing C libraries, and and really C was the the grand champion of of shared code uh, on Unix systems, and, and it was very popular in the 90s, and probably is today. But today we use things like C sharp and NuGet, and you know we're we're grabbing libraries and, and we're integrating and using them directly into our code that way. And so that for that reason, I, I like C-sharp. I like uh, the capability that I've seen out of it. It's very reliable, very predictable. And 
and I don't have lots of uh, unpredictability or uncertainty when I work with the language. But it's not as flexible as Python. And for that reason, I think Python is, is definitely on the move. And so the companies that are ignoring Python are just kind of uh, saying, well, we got Python support, but they're not moving all of their code base to Python have made a strategic mistake. And so that that uh, will return, that, that element of dislike for Python will return to them. And uh, that may be a game changer for them because look at Microsoft and their, in a, their unwillingness to move into the mobile market quickly and capture that market um, and their willingness to, you know, instead invest into Azure and, and become the, the back-end database system of the businesses. Well, I don't like Azure because Azure is expensive. And, you know, it, Microsoft said, well, we're a, kind of like a software utility company. We want to, you know, provide these services for businesses. We don't want to you know, try to capitalize on the consumer handheld market through our our devices and, you know, appeal to the developer community through a universal cross-platform language. Well, you could say, yeah, they did. They built, uh, you know, the universal code and they, they built XAML and, you know, it was which was monotouch. And, and, yeah, they kind of threw some money out there. But they they really didn't have a strong developer buy-in on their approach. And it's very confusing why they didn't. When you look at the adoption of SWIFT, why didn't Microsoft immediately move off of the Windows operating system, move to uh, a Unix operating system on their handheld, and promote SWIFT as a universal programming cross-platform uh, language for all handheld devices. Well, there's a competition between Apple and Microsoft. And see, that competition forced Microsoft out of the market. And it's really confusing, in my mind, why they chose to go that way. Because you could have had a... You could have had Swift applications that run on iOS, that run on Linux, on a uh, Microsoft handheld device, which would have been hardware, you know. So Microsoft would have got into the hardware business instead of the operating system business. And see, that's where they said, well, we can't do that. We can't move off of our Windows operating system, and therefore we cannot... Uh, make the jump to SWIFT. Well, now that's somewhat confusing because there is, look at who developed C Sharp. And, you know, he's the same person that built Delphi. Well, why couldn't C Sharp and Delphi and SWIFT have been closerly, more closely integrated and been a open source shared library. 
So just like uh, you see .NET Core, well, .NET Core, you know, does a lot of work. It, it can run on, you know, Google Cloud. It can run on Amazon. It can run on Microsoft. So, you know, the language is universal, and the operating systems are preserved. So they say, okay, we were able to preserve our operating system, the source of our revenue. We're an operating system, not a language company. And that becomes obvious, that they are not about building universal operating systems, but they're about uh, preserving their operating system. So you can see the greed in somewhat in the, their approach, that they're unwilling to uh, to change directions and capitalize on larger portions of the market because they now have the developer support for a Swift-like language, which could have been C-sharp, you know, it could have been definitely uh, .NET Core instead of Swift, and the world could have moved with .NET Core on all devices. And, you know, you look at uh, Flutter, where it's used widgets, and it's more like Swift. So, you know, Flutter and Swift are very close together in terms of their approach. And so at some point, you can see Google lining up with Apple uh, versus Google lining up with Microsoft. So Google's going to say, well, we support, uh, you know, SQL Server. We support, you know, IIS. We support, you know, all these operating-specific platforms to run on. But eventually, as things get more complex, they're going to, we're going to move to where the developers are putting the interest. And so, you know, their interest is in this Python. Uh, their interest is in components that are easy and quick to build interfaces that look good and cross-platform, meaning they'll work on all devices. Because, you know, there's less programming resource and there's less qualified skill. So those two things are driving the automation in the software world. And so you have to consider that fact and that trend in your thinking. All right, well, that's, uh, you know, my analysis on, on uh, uh, the cross-platform dilemma that's emerging that I see right now. And until the big companies move in that direction, uh, you're going to see a lot of fragmentation, a lot of increased complexity, and it's just going to be challenging for uh, for individuals to achieve that level of uh, skill that they need to to be able to integrate in all these systems. Well, until next week, I would encourage you to think about the cross-platform dilemma and uh, begin to work to integrate into uh, your own philosophies about cross-platform and uh, begin, you know, making suggestions to these big companies that you want more cross-platform simplicity and a better, better understanding of those uh, type of systems. Okay, well, until then, uh, keep coding, and I will uh, 
talk to you next week. Or, yeah, next week.